Welcome to the Huntley Baptist Church podcast. We hope that this message can be an encouragement to you today. Please feel free to contact us at huntleybaptist@extra.co.nz or visit us at huntleybaptist.com. What does it mean to follow Jesus? If you read in the Bible about people following Jesus, it was pretty easy to understand. It was physical, it just happened, okay? So here's Matthew, the tax collector. This is what happened in Matthew chapter 9. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. Now, that's pretty simple, isn't it? He's behind the desk, or whatever he was, and he gets up, locks the door if he does, and he just goes off. You recognize that scene, don't you? So following Jesus for Matthew was simple. I won't say it was easy. Maybe that's why evangelists get us to stand up and walk. If anybody here wants to follow Jesus, just stand up and walk up the front. Maybe they're trying to reenact that whole thing again. <laughs> uh, now, Matthew actually wrote that story himself. Uh, he followed Jesus. He wrote things down. Uh, the Gospel of Matthew, my favorite book in the whole world. He, every time when Jesus would eat, Matthew would eat. And uh, when Jesus would wash, Matthew would have a wash. And when it's toilet break, they all stopped together. And when there's a party, Jesus went to the party. Matthew went to the party. He watched what Jesus did at the party. That's how we know. And uh, when, it was, when Jesus starts healing people, Matthew's there. He's watching. How did this happen? Taking down the details. He followed Jesus very, very literally. But what does it mean now to follow Jesus? Because we can't quite do it quite like that, can we? Now, today I'm going to tell you three incomplete stories. They're hard to understand, but they might give us some clues as to how to follow Jesus and give us some clues as to why some people don't follow Jesus. But first of all, before I do that, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about figurative language, figures of speech. And I'm going to tell you a more complete but similar story from the Bible. Now, some, I want you to imagine that somebody says this. Did you hear Auntie last night? Man, she really did her nana. She got her knickers in a twist about something, and she blew her foo-foo valve. All right, now, when somebody says that, if you've grown up around here, you get the vibe. You go, yep, okay, I get that. Wow, Auntie must, ooh, okay, I get it, you see. But if you've come in from somewhere else, and English is your second language, and you're not used to that sort of thing, you go, she what? She, uh, a? What's a foo-foo valve? I actually don't know. That, and you start looking up knickers in the dictionary, and it starts with a K if you have to do it. Uh, so, and, and he's, what's that got to do? Knickers and a twist? I, I, I don't understand it, you see. So what happens is we use speech figuratively, because that, what I just said, is actually not about nanas, and it's not about knickers, and it's not about foo-foo valves, because it's a figure of speech. Thanks, Samuel. We understand them because they're in our language. But a second language speaker, if you come from somewhere else, from another language... It can be very difficult, can't it? Figurative language. Correct, Andy? It is. You go, what on earth is that all about? Because even if you look it up in the dictionary, it doesn't really uh, work. We used, to have a, we used to study proverbs in school, English proverbs. Did you used to do that? And so uh, here's one you see. You say, oh, that's the last straw. That's the last straw. Did you, do you remember the first time you heard that, Andy? Did you know what it meant? You have a similar one? All right. So, and it comes from a story. The story is that somebody loaded a camel up, and he put more and more straw on the camel, and the camel managed to do it, but suddenly one little last straw went on, and the camel's back broke. It was the last straw that broke the camel's back. And when somebody says, that's the last straw, it means I've put up with this, I've put up with that, I've put up with so much, but now I've had it. See, it's the last straw. It's nothing about straws, is it? Now, do they still learn English proverbs in school? 
They certainly learn Māori proverbs in school, which is good. But I think it's good to learn English proverbs as well, so you know what people are talking about. Now, uh, here's, here's a Māori proverb. Can you read the guy's T-shirt? It's a bit small, isn't it? It says, Ahakoa he iti he paunamu. All right? Now, if you come from another language, uh, background, and you're trying to look at that, and you say, Ahakoa he iti he paunamu. I want to know what that means. So you look it up in your dictionary, okay? You look up Ahakoa, and it means um, although. And you look up he iti, iti means, what does iti mean? It means small. And what does paunamu mean? Greenstone, all right? So you say, although small, greenstone. Although small, greenstone. Well, that little baby doesn't look like he's made of greenstone, does he? He is small. He's precious, all right? He's small and he's precious, all right? Now, what happens is the proverb, of course, means exactly that thing. It means he's small, but he's precious. We sometimes say, oh, that guy, he's just solid gold. Well, of course he's not. He wouldn't be able to move, would he? But what we mean by it is he's got huge value. And that saying, that I just put that up there so that if, you, if you're not a Māori speaker, you go, oh, okay, I get it now, how we have to work out figurative language. It can be difficult, can't it? And somebody really has to explain it to you, or you have to look into the background a bit. Because to the Māori people, they didn't have gold. The greenstone, ponamu, was the most precious substance they had. And so that's what it means. It's small, but it's precious. Today we'll be looking at figures of speech that come from another language and we're going to try and work out what they mean. The language is Greek, but the culture is Jewish. And there's a word of warning here. Some translators of the Bible are interpreters, so instead of what the Bible says, they put what they think it means. I think this means this. So uh, they put that out in their version and they sell it as God's word. Uh, how would they translate it? They might go, oh, well, it, it was small, but it really was valuable. But actually, that's not what it says. It says it's small, but it's ponamu. So this is a big dilemma for Bible translators. Do we translate exactly what it says, or do we translate what it means, but the trouble is, is what I think it means, isn't it? Do you see the risk there? Once we start to stray away from what the Bible actually says. If you have a translation like that, then today it might give us some good ideas to help us know what God meant, but it might not be what God said. Eugene Peterson got famous by writing a book called The Message. The Message is two steps removed from the Bible because what Eugene Peters did was he read the Bible and he goes, all right, I think I know what that means. It means this. How would I say that? So he put it in language that Eugene Peterson would use to say the same thing instead of the way God said it. Now, some people find that helpful, but don't read The Message instead of the Bible. Because what if God's message wasn't, wasn't only in what he says, but how he chooses to say it? There's a richness of meaning in some of the figurative language that gets left out or changed from Bible translations. And as we meditate on the actual words of the Bible, God can show us new depths as we get older, but only if we know the actual words. So today we'll just look at the Bible and we'll try to work out for ourselves what it might mean to us. Let's get into it. All right? Now that might be a bit controversial, but there's something to think about. Jesus could read people. He knew what made them tick. He knew what they were really thinking. He knew what motivated them. And he knew what held them back. Can we do that? Yes. Yes, we can. The Bible says that there's a gift called the discernment of spirits. There's a word of knowledge. There's a word of wisdom. These are gifts of the Holy Spirit. They're spiritual gifts. They enable us to read people like Jesus did. On occasion, 
at times if God gives us the gift and the grace and if we're obedient and if we develop it. But nonetheless, Jesus is the master, the total expert at reading people more than we ever could be. There's a story which we usually call the rich young ruler, which you know well, and I'm going to read it to set the scene today because unlike the other stories I'm telling you, this story is more complete. It has an ending. Just then, this is headed in in New International Version, the rich in the kingdom of God. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. Jesus Jesus replied, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What still do I lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I'll tell you, it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, now there's a figure of speech. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. We don't say that in our culture, do we? What do you think it means? What do you think it means? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. What do you think? No idea at all. Maybe we need Eugene Peterson. Just kidding. <laughs> What's that? It's really, really difficult. Now, there's actually, there's a whole layer of symbolism in that story, which one day I might tell you. I'm not going to today because it's not our main story. But in that picture of the camel going through the eye of the needle, which, by the way, was possible, there's a whole story, there's a whole exhortation for us. But it does On the face of it, and first and foremost, it means it's very difficult. It's very difficult. What was the obstacle for this young man? What was stood between him and God's fullness for his life? Did you pick that up, Alyssa? 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 Wealth. I wonder, wealth stood between him and God. I'm going to say no, but you're very close. The love of wealth, okay? Here's an interesting thing. There'd be other people who might have been as rich as him, but that wasn't what was holding them back. Jesus read him. He read what was going on in his head and heart. And that message was just for that young man, not necessarily for other people who might have wealth as well. Actually, he did, and we know that, because of the fact that, sadly, he walked away. He wished, he would have loved to enter the kingdom of God, But he just couldn't actually do it. So on the face of it, that's what it meant, right? The kingdom of God is very hard for rich people to get into. So we've thought about figures of speech, and we've looked at a complete story, and now let's look at today's part stories. Three men who each had an obstacle to following Jesus that Jesus could read. Now Luke decided to write down these part stories. He didn't write them completely. He wrote part of each story. And so Luke must have thought it was something we can learn from these. This part of the Bible in Luke 9, in the 
New International Version is called The Cost of Following Jesus. And in the, in the Good News Version of the Bible, there's a heading that's called the, the Would-Be Followers of Jesus. Don't forget those little notes that they put into Bibles to head up the paragraphs. Weren't in the original text. That's what the translators have put there to help us find it in many cases and to know what it's about. It's not wrong, but it's not the original words. So this is Luke chapter 9. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Did that man follow Jesus? We guess not, although the Bible actually doesn't say. But we guess he didn't. What was his obstacle that Jesus read in his life? Did you pick that up? Security, wasn't it? See, the funny thing is, that guy started out by saying, I'll follow you anywhere. And Jesus, that was the thing he chose to say. Maybe he was kind of trying to talk himself into it. But Jesus knew that he wouldn't actually follow Jesus anywhere. There were some conditions on it. He wanted security. He wanted a home. What about you? What about me? I have a young, well, I have a relation by marriage who when he was a young man had a real sense of mission zeal. And he went to the Philippines. And in the Philippines, he loved the people and he started to be a missionary there. But one day we went round to see his father and he says, look, look what he has to put up with. And he showed us a picture. In the picture, he says, this is the bathroom. Now, this guy lived in this most beautiful sort of jungly place. And down the back of the garden, there was a kind of a tin shelter that came around like that. And you go in this tin shelter to have a shower. That was the bathroom. And Janet and I go, oh, cool, how beautiful. Wow, that's lovely. And, and to him, it was, huh, he shouldn't have to put up with this. And what happened was, Craig, because that was his name, Craig had been brought up in a, in a home that had matching furniture and the best of everything. Not like most of us, you know, it's whatever you're Auntie was chucking out and it went into your house. But Craig's kids had been raised with the best of everything. You know, the nice clothes and the nice furniture and the stuff like that. And Craig, when he went to the Philippines, his need for security in a decent home was just too much. Although his conditions to us looked beautiful. And actually Craig ended up falling away. He fell away from, from the Christian life altogether. And I often wonder if it was just the fact that he was raised too soft not able to put up with dropping his life standard about his living standards about does that so don't raise your kids too soft does that mean that Christians can't have a home does it mean that so in Colossians 4 it says this greet the brothers and Laodicea as well as Nympha and the church that meets at her house so the church at Laodicea where did they meet not in a building like this they met in Nympha's house so it's obvious that that was a disciple who had a house. It must have been a pretty big one, and it was there for God to use. The church used it. Can you think of any homes that Jesus himself used? Of course you can. Come on. Peter's home. He did. He was there when Peter's mother-in-law was sick. So we know he went to Peter's home. Anyone else? Yeah, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He went to their home. It was like a home away from home for him. Anything else? Zacchaeus, you know, come down from the tree, Zacchaeus, I'm going to your place for lunch. But actually, Matthew, the tax collector, he said, follow me. But where did he follow him to first? Matthew's house. See? So we know, in fact, that God doesn't say, Christians can't have a house. We know that. But Jesus comes first. And if he asks us to give it up, 
and we must be willing to do it. Jesus in that little part story knew that that man's need to know where he's sleeping and that it's going to be comfortable was something that stood between him and God. And that mustn't be like that for us. Let's go to verse 59. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. (laughs) Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go. And proclaim the kingdom of God. Woo! That's harsh, isn't it? That's rough. Mm. I mean, it doesn't it seem fair enough to go and bury your father, wouldn't it? I want you to think about my life here. When I was nearly 13 years old, the Lord Jesus put a call on my life, and I just knew it was time for me to follow Jesus. When I was nearly 66 years old, I buried my father. If I had said to Jesus, I'll come and follow you, Jesus, but first let me bury my father, how long would it have taken for me to become a Christian? Over 50 years, huh? Because there's always something in our life, whatever it might be, where we say, yeah, I'll get there, Jesus. I'll get there, but I just better get over this first. I better do this first. Don't worry, I'll be there. I've just got to whatever. And in this case, this man's idea was he's got to bury his father. Now, that was fair and that was loyal. I should say, uh, it didn't say his dad was dead. No one's claimed that he's dead. In our mainstream culture, we tend to think about burying people when they're dead. But over there, they were thinking, he was thinking in terms of, of, you know, his dad's still there. He's still got to be with his dad, look after his dad. Does God like us to look after our dad? I mean, does the Bible say we shouldn't care about our parents? Does it? I hope you're convinced of that. In Mark 7, it says this. Jesus was thundering away at the Pharisees in Mark 7. He says, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. But you say, if anyone declares that what, he might, have been used, that what might have been used to help their father or mother is korban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition. Pharisees. You're stopping people looking after their old mum and dad. So you can be sure that Jesus wants us to look after our old mum and dad. That was not... hmm? That's that's what they need. That's looking after them, isn't it? Isn't it? Well, it is, I suppose. But um, what what we hope we do is we give our mum and dad the best care that they need, whatever that takes. And people have done that all sorts of ways. They've moved in with mum and dad. They've moved mum and dad in with them. They've found a nice care facility for mum and dad. There's all sorts of ways. But what Jesus says is, look after your mum and dad. But you, Mr. Man, are using that as an excuse to put off following me for 53 years in Jeremy's case. In John 19, Jesus was hanging on the cross. He looked down, this is some of Jesus' last words, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. So from that hour, this disciple took her into his home. You see, one of the last things Jesus ever did before he died was make sure that someone would look after his mother. Jesus wants us to look after our mother. Who was it? Hmm? John. Now, in this scripture, 
There is another surprising bit too. Boing. Oops, no, I overdid it, didn't I? It says, let the dead bury their dead. Let the dead bury the dead. Who are they? Who are the dead people who are going to bury the dead? Maybe. Well, any ideas? See, I'm chucking stuff out there. What I'm saying is I could probably find a so-called translation of the Bible that works this all out for you. But I'm not so sure that God doesn't want you to think. Maybe he does. Let the dead bury the dead. What does that mean? Yeah, maybe. Any other ideas? What do you think, Russell? The unsaved. The unsaved. See, the spiritually dead. Hey, look, there's plenty of spiritually dead people out there who can bury people, run businesses, pump gas, make hamburgers, whatever. I'm not making this up. Look, how many of you young people had a paid job in your teens? Well, hooray, I thoroughly agree with that. But my girls did not... And that was largely because of me. Because what I said is, they can find someone else to flip hamburgers, but I really, really need your help with youth work. Not just anyone can do that. So I wonder if Jesus was saying, let spiritually dead people sort all that stuff out. Because I've got an urgent and fulfilling and special job for you. There's an interesting twist at the end of the scripture. Jesus starts by saying, follow me. But at the end, he says, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. As if this man could follow Jesus without being with him physically. Does that help us? It does, doesn't it? Because that's what we're doing. We're not with Jesus physically, following him around day by day, meal by meal. We're actually sent out. So actually, Jesus had a call on that man, which was rather like to us. Did that man follow Jesus? We don't know, do we? But we assume the answer is no, that the obstacle was too great. And we've got another one here too. And still another one said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. What a strange thing to say. That's figurative language again, isn't it? Plow, a plow. I'm going to say goodbye to my family. Don't plow and look back. What? Come on, does anyone know about plowing? What's all that about? Any idea? What's, what's he saying here? Why? That's right. Now, I haven't done ploughing. You can't do a straight furrow by looking backwards, said Andy. I haven't, I haven't done ploughing, but I've heard that you keep your eye fixed and you take that plough. And you don't look back to say, how am I going? Whoopsie. All right? Now, I've, the nearest I've... What is it for me? Perhaps rowing a boat. So... It does. Yes, doesn't it? Yeah, you're driving a car along. It's a, how am I doing? <laughs> On a scooter, yeah. And I used to, I'd row a boat, you see. So to row the boat, I'd fix my eyes on something actually behind, behind the boat because I'm going this way, you see, and row the boat and make sure that what I fix my eyes on stayed, stayed there, uh, which meant I crashed into things. But it meant I went nice and straight. So Jesus is saying, in some shape or form, you can't keep looking back. You've got to look forward. Some people spend a lot of time looking back and thinking about what has been lost in the past, which actually wasn't that great. 
Someone said the trouble with Christians is they have short memories. Even if we remember the times before we were a Christian and we miss them, they were never going to last anyway. Jim Elliott said something quite famous. He said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's pretty sensible, isn't it? And Jim gave his life for the Lord Jesus Christ and for the gospel. But what Jim would have said is, the life Jim gave, he couldn't have kept anyway. Okay, so he's, he's using a grammar that's unfamiliar to you. Although Jim Elliott actually lived not so very long ago. You're, all right then, I'll put it differently. You're no fool if you give away what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose. Is that grammar easier for you? You're no fool if you give away what you cannot keep. Well, Jim Elliott gave his life, but it was a life he couldn't keep. It was an earthly life, a physical life, which we know is coming to an end. Now, Jim Elliott would say that the earthly life he gave for Jesus, that was all right, because it was never going to last for any, forever anyway. He died as a young man. He could have become old, but what he got to keep was eternal life. What he's saying is, I'm giving away my, what's the word, my mortal life, to gain eternal life. I'm giving away treasure in, in, on earth to gain treasure in heaven. I'm giving away whatever pleasures the earth can offer to have eternal life with Jesus. So what Jim says, I'm no fool. You could look at him and say he was a fool. He went into a very dangerous place. But he was no fool. You can't take it with you, no. Well, I, I had a bit of a think about this. And I thought, how do I summarize this? Because, you know, I've, I've been saying to you, what does this mean? What does this... What? I don't think there's anything wrong with thinking. And I haven't prepackaged some of this stuff for you tonight. You've given me some of your ideas. You could make your life easier when the Bible is hard to understand. You could get some help and you could read some Bible guides and you could listen to speakers. But sometimes it does us good to stop and have a big think. The Bible says that the spirit of truth guides us into all truth. John 16 says this, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but will tell you what he has heard. He will tell you about the future. So there you are. Don't be proud, but realize that if you're a follower of Jesus, the spirit of truth can speak to you. I have a little quote, which I was going to put in the middle, and I've only just come across it because it was in the back. But I like this. It's written by Steve McCurdy. Do you know who he is? Steve McCurdy is the new director of One Mission Society. And he wrote this. When I met my wife, a born and raised Kiwi, in 2012, I never would have thought we'd be starting on such an amazing journey. In 2016, she brought me over to New Zealand. Within a few days, I knew we were home, and I knew God was calling. We flew back to our newly built home in Virginia sold all our belongings, and packed a few suitcases. We, along with Adeline, our nine-month-old daughter, said our farewells to friends and family and flew to New Zealand. That is a man who follows Jesus. He's not saying God doesn't want us to have a home. I think it would be very difficult to leave a brand-new house. I've never had one. And if I'd just built a lovely new house, I'd feel very difficult. It would be very difficult to leave it. But for this man... Stephen McCurdy, following Jesus, was so important that they didn't even mind two hoots. They said goodbye to their house. They said goodbye to their friends. 
And they had a story that ended so differently to those three people we looked at who met Jesus tonight. How would we be? If you said to Jesus, I'm going to follow you, then what would he look back at you and say? What about this? And if he did say that, would we, really, we, would we be willing to lay it down and go his way? Let's pray. Jesus, these stories are difficult. In fact, they're not even whole stories because we don't even really know what the guys did afterwards. But Luke wrote them in the Bible because he thought that it was good for us to think about them. And it is. We know that not only when we're talking about giving our life to Jesus, the salvation experience, not only then, but also day to day, we're called to follow Jesus. Follow him tomorrow. Follow him to this place and that. Follow him as he calls us to do certain things. And we know that there are things in us, just like those men, that are just as self-centered and weak and sinful, really. So we pray that when you put the word on us, when you say, hey, this is the thing that you need to do, this is the issue for you, that we'll be bold enough to confront it. And like Jim Elliot, we'll realize that what you're offering is worth so much more than what you're asking us to give up. We pray you'd help us to be bold and single-minded Christians and follow you wherever you go. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Huntley Baptist Church Podcast. We hope that it has been an encouragement to you. Please feel free to contact us at